You've just entered the Disaster Tough podcast, the place for emergency managers, first responders, and humanitarians who want to get the job done. Stories, lessons, and tips are provided by field experts. I'm your host, John Scardina, owner of Doberman Emergency Management and former federal emergency response official who's responded to some of the most extreme disasters. Disaster Tough is our mantra. It combines experience, training, and analytics in order to be successful at any stage within the disaster life cycle. It means being a professional in emergency and disaster services. Doberman Emergency Management lives by this. If your organization needs to fill a gap, please contact us. We can help. Contact info is in the show notes. We also support other products and organizations that will increase your ability. For example, if you fight wildfires, hurricanes, a pandemic, any disaster in the field, at a hospital or command center, listen up. You're missing out if you do not use L3 Harris for your radio comms. They are secure, portable, mobile, and scalable, which is great news for us in the field. A truly disaster-tough radio system. Check out the XL family of radios by clicking on the show notes or simply go to L3Harris.com. The battle to monitor and contain COVID-19 just got exponentially better for us. We are officially introducing an electronic, reusable COVID-19 test through our sponsors. It's called COVID Plus Test, created by Tiger Tech, distributed by FS Global. This is the first FDA-authorized, rapid, non-invasive pre-screener. It's incredibly easy to use. Forget those one-time use swabs. This is a disaster-tough technology. For more information on COVID Plus Test, check out our show notes. Welcome back to the show, everybody. It's your host, John Scardina. Man, I am weirdly excited about this episode because it's one, a super horrific topic, but a very important topic to cover, especially on Father's Day weekend. And we're going to be covering into, to some of that, the, that mental health side in a second. But before I, before I introduce my guest here, I just want to preference this episode that on our show, we, we cover actual events. As I've talked before with other guests, and some of those events, of course, are man-made. And we don't want to uh, turn it into an entertaining thing. We don't want to turn it into something light. But what we do want to do is say, hey, this is an actual event with real people and, and let's figure out the after actions of what we can do to make it better. And so even though we're talking about on the show, I hope you can understand that the seriousness of the topic, you can understand the weight of it, and most importantly, prevent it. And so if you can prevent it and, and, and prevent the impacts of it, which we're going to be covering a little bit, you know, we can, we can do better in this field. And so we're going to be talking about the Pulse nightclub shooting that happened about five years ago. In fact, almost to the date of this uh, this episode, we're going to be talking to the incident commander, Chief Brian Davis, who who actually responded uh, to the event, and is going to be talking to us about that. And then finally, we're going to be talking about if you've been involved in this event, which some of us unfortunately have, or if it's going to happen in the future, which we feel like at this point is kind of inevitable. How can you help yourself and your family move on? from uh, a horrific scene. And, and Brian's a, 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 you know, a really great example of doing that. He's going to be talking about those experiences today. Chief, welcome to the show. John, thank you so much, man. I'm, I'm happy to be here and I appreciate the opportunity. Yeah, it's kind of, um, this is kind of like the weird thing about our field, right? Because uh, we all have had response experiences. A lot of us have a response experiences, especially the guests and myself. 
And so you you have this you have this weight or this responsibility, this badge even of I've had these crazy response experiences. And it allows us to go into these topics, but at the same time, it's like, man, I, I wish I didn't have to have that badge. I wish I didn't have to have that associated. So uh, understanding that you carry that weight, um, again, I, th- I think it's a great honor for us to have you on the show, again, just before you even get started. And um, like, just thank you for re- responding. I, I've heard amazing things about the things you did on, in, in that response and want to break that up. But even post-event, you've done a lot to be able to help out the responders and their families to to be their advocate, to, to be able to move on. And so um, that's a huge pitch for our show. It's it like mental health and emotional health. So uh, again, thanks um, thanks for taking the time for coming on. Yeah, absolutely, John. And you know, it's, it's one of those things. It's not something you uh, want to be on the top of your resume. I mean, it is something you want to be proud of, but uh, I've coined it as that worst best day ever type thing. It, it's the worst scenario. You, your your heart pours out for the victims and both the the victims from the shooter and the and the individuals that have suffered trauma as a result of the incident. Um, but it was my best day in that I, I couldn't be more proud of the men and the women that actually rallied to the cause that evening. And and we were able to affect a lot of rescues and save a lot of lives in the process. I mean, we weren't able to save the 49 that died as a result of these horrendous acts, but, um, and, and that part of it makes us really sad. Uh, but we were able to actually save over 30 that were critically injured and wounded and they made it to the trauma center and they survived the surgeries mm. and everything else. So, you know, I, I, we, we talk about my involvement in that and, and I would like to allude and, and everybody understands this, I'm sure in the EM world and, and also in uh, emergency response. It's a team effort. And I would be remiss if I didn't acknowledge the men and the women that, that were there on that event. It, it was some of the most professional actions I've ever witnessed. And it's not something that we were ready for, quite honestly. We've mm-hmm. talked about it. Uh, I think agencies across the country were talking about it, but it wasn't really on the forefront of what fire departments and EMS providers were prepared for. Um, yeah, and, and it was large scale, huge magnitude when it hit. Um, well, when it hit, it was the, the worst, unfortunately to date, it's not, but at the time it was the worst active shooter event in U S history. And it was, I mean, it was unique for so many different reasons. So for the listeners who, uh, somehow were hiding on a rock for the last five years and didn't know <laughs> about this. So let me, if I, if I may, sir, I'm going to probably set up the context here a little bit. And then you can, uh, I'll set up like the, the pre-end and you can talk about like the response. Um, Absolutely. We don't ever share, for, again, for our listeners, we would encourage anybody in the field who's listening to this, please adopt this methodology. Never share the shooters or the terrorist names. Um, we don't feel like they're, they're worth sharing. And uh, we, we want to change that mentality. Really? So, yeah, there, yeah, you yeah. can call them evil. You can call them broken. You can call them whatever you want. Just don't call them by their name. It's not worth remembering. But, um, so the, the the shooter goes into Pulse nightclub. Um, it is a um, gay nightclub in Orlando. Goes in there, checks out the scene. There is an off-duty officer there um, and security. He actually leaves and comes back. And um, as far as I know, the the um, there's a 
there's a, if I recall, there's um, an upper stage, a lower stage, a, a patio area. The on the upper stage, the DJ. Um, I'm talking like I've been there. I haven't been there, but uh, you know, done lots of attractions <laughs> on it. Yeah, the, yeah, I love going there. Uh, the the DJ has um, the the booth was on the upper upper end with bathrooms on the back end where the upper end was, and so um, you have 320 people packed inside this club with some people on the patio when the shooting started um, around 2:02 in the morning. And um, you have people on the patio. A lot of confusion, obviously, because you already have sounds in a nightclub, but then you have to deal with shooting. Um, before we get into like really anything, what I find is most fascinating, what I always bring this up in, in, um, in our active shooter class is telling people to know your exits. And the DJ had enough situational awareness. And, and in fact, some of, the, um, some of the members did too, to understand that there was an exit behind the DJ. And so you had a flood of people going out, but I mean, essentially they were locked in there with this shooter. Um, and so the fact that out of 320 people, it is, it is horrible that 49 people lost their lives. However, it could have been much higher even. And so, uh, yeah, that's, that's the stage. And so you get this call around two o'clock in the morning. Um, can you kind of walk us through that process of like the next actions you took? Yeah, it was, uh, you know, it's, it's one of those things that's a bit surreal, you know, been, um, been in the fire service and a first responder, uh, worked as a flight paramedic for a local program and a trauma flight program for many years, you know, so you get accustomed to what the units are and what they're responding to and everything else. And, uh, when that call was dispatched, the, the units that were assigned to the call, seemed a bit out of the norm for me. Like, I'm, I'm like, wait a minute, what are we going to? Because it, it was just a myriad of, of units. We, we, most departments have an SOP, you know, where they have uh, a mass casualty assignment that consists of so many units and so mm. on and so forth. And this one didn't really meet that. Like I, I wasn't really sure at first. Um, and it was a lot of units. So I'm thinking, okay, what's, you know, what's really going on two o'clock in the morning, downtown Orlando, one of the busiest nights of the week. In, in the city, uh, they've got events all up and down Orange Avenue. They've got concerts going on that have streets closed. I mean, it's, mm. you know, it's just one of the busiest nights for us. Um, and I, I, we, we automatically move over to an operational tack and everybody gives responding. And, and, and before that, uh, probably one of, one of the most revered and admired lieutenants in our organization now retired, he was the company officer that was at the station that was right next to the Pulse nightclub. And rarely, if ever, did you hear any uh, fluctuations in his voice on the radio. He was usually pretty calm, cool, collective. Mm. And uh, he came across the radio in this very, I don't want to call it high-pitched, but several time tones higher than normal, very rapid. Uh, Yeah. And I'm like, all right, something's not right because I've never seen that in this lieutenant. This is a guy that you can count on to be really cool, calm, and collective in, in moments like that. And in those moments, and I'm sure in the years after when people were had an opportunity to review, review the audio, you can actually hear gunfire occurring in the background. Jeez. So, you know, my, my immediate response is, holy crap, my guys are in the middle of this and I'm a mile away, but yet there's not a thing I can do. Even when I get there, it's like, all right, we just got to figure out what we got and what we yeah. have going on. Um, so immediately just went into... You know, they're telling us multiple calls, multiple victims. We've re- Our communications division was 
overwhelmed with phone calls. I mean, 500, 600 calls within no time at all mm-hmm. because it was members or it was people that were there and their families and everybody else. Cause this is breaking. This is hitting the news everywhere uh, yeah. immediately. Um, so resources was big, obviously in an, emer- an emergency management and disaster preparedness and stuff. That's something we talk about a lot. So I, I asked for the world. I said, you know what? I'm, I'm being told I've got 20 to 30 victims. Uh, I mean, we're, we're a department that consists of 17 stations. We, we mm. provide our own transport in addition with uh, private ambulance service and then mutual aid agreements with other departments and stuff. And I'm like, man, if, if I've got 30 victims, I am, my transport situation is already completely overwhelmed. Mm. Uh, our hospitals, which fortunately for us, and this isn't always the case, but fortunately for us, our level one trauma center was literally six, seven blocks away. Oh my gosh. Uh, our, our other trauma center that it's not a dedicated trauma center, but one that can receive overflow was six or seven miles away. So mm. we, we have hospitals, but I, I've traveled to parts of the U S to talk about active shooter and their closest trauma facility is an hour away. Yeah. And that's by flight. So oh, we were very fortunate and unfortunate. Good. You know, like I said, best day, worst day ever. Yeah. Um, you know, in best case scenario, we were where we were when it happened. And, and law enforcement was really active initially in getting some of those people out of there. And, and actually they, you know, they saw how overwhelmed this was going to be. Uh, but the biggest thing for me was in, in this realm of chaos that we were diving into, Somebody had to be that voice that just brings it all down. And uh, I, I seem to be that <laughs> shit magnet. Sorry. Uh, <laughs> the black cloud. I, I'm sure others that know me will tell you that. But it, it used to be whatever can happen will happen whenever I'm working. Um, so it's, it's something I've really tried to focus on as a chief officer. But uh, it, it just we had to bring it down a level. And the biggest piece of that, and I'm sure in, in your world of emergency management and disaster preparedness and stuff like that, you know, one of the biggest thing is getting everything set up and having the resources and That's being right. organized. The MOUs. And my everything. number one priority was the safety of the men and women that were responding and the safety of my crews that were already literally 100 feet from this nightclub where this is taking place. Um, hmm. And and then basically, I just kind of pulled the reins back on everybody. I said, listen, we just can't go running in there. We can't just all come pulling into this dead end and have no way out. We have to set this up for success. We have to set up the divisions, the groups, everything that you need with that. And, you know, a lot of departments are, myself included, we, we spend a lot of time with tabletop exercises in, in, and even in mass casualty or disaster preparedness for hurricanes or tornadoes or earthquakes or whatever it may be. And we talk about all that stuff, but it's amazing how different it is when it actually happens. Yeah. Because the, the, the reality of it sets in and you're like, oh, this is insane. But held everybody back. I actually moved myself into uh, a forward position in the scene very, very early on. Um, again, it's not anything I want anybody to relive emotionally uh, because this, this will, some people will look at that and they'll remember it. I mean, I have still have the visual of driving down Orange Avenue and individuals running the other direction against me, carrying shooting victims and mm. just trying to get them somewhere than other than the immediacy of the nightclub itself. Um, but it got in, got set up, got positioned, made immediate contact with the station. Uh, I actually chose to set up the command post and stuff a little bit away from the station, but yet I still had a visual on everything that was going on, uh, probably initially, maybe a little too close for us, but 
I, I really needed to get a grasp. And uh, the, the one thing too, you know, law enforcement was there in numbers. We had agencies from all over Central Florida, FHP, Orange County, UCF police, Winter Park police. Um, there were more cop cars and blue lights there than I think you could count in a year on any other, you know, any other given That's kind of what you want in that situation, though, honestly. Uh, overwhelmed yeah, absolutely. with... Yeah. And, and we're there to help each other, right? We're there for the... They, they're, you know, their goal, we understand active shooter. You've done a lot with it. You know, they, they really have three objectives. They're either going to confine, kill, or capture the shooter... And, and they want to stop stop the event. And we know uh, most active shooter events, by definition, depending on whose definition you read, they're over within 10 minutes. Yes. This wasn't the case. This, this individual was actually shooting for more than 10 minutes. And it wasn't until he was barricaded into an area of the, the nightclub that was pretty inaccessible to law enforcement that now this evolved into a hostage situation. Um so really, our you know this thing came in waves for us. We we set up an MCI, uh, we operated under that premise. We we had all our groups and divisions working, and again, the discipline of the members that were responding really are what made this to the degree it was successful. Successful because they were disciplined. They used a little bit of reserve, um, and they knew that it was absolutely critical that we really built on the foundation for this, and and made sure that we all just didn't come running in. And then we couldn't get out, meaning we can't get our transport group set up. We, we don't have any communications with the hospital. We don't have any communications with law enforcement, which was impartial the case. Um, and we've learned a lot from that, I hope, as an industry, it, what, the importance of, of that unified command and having those communications and having a liaison and everything else. But, yeah, it was just really surreal. And, uh, I mean, I've had some pretty enormous events in my career Um and this one definitely just immediately stood out. And, and really what stood it out in the beginning was the lieutenant and just the, his, his voice, just the change. He, he never wavers in that at all. And just mm. to hear it in his voice, I knew then, I said, this is, not, this is not just a shooting where we've got one or two or three victims. This is a big deal. And, and especially when he keys up and you can hear the shooting in the background. I, I, I'm like, mm. holy cow, what do we got? Yeah, you're right, right there. So... Yeah. You you bring up a lot of different you bring up a lot of points to show why it was so unique. So yeah, you're right. Temper most like ninety percent of active shooters are under ten minutes. You got yeah. ten minutes to save people's lives. And run hide fight doesn't just mean run hide fight. It means a lot more than that. Um the other thing that you br brought up is there's a discussion. I I really push back on the discussion. I think it's semantics and I think it's stupid. Uh, most of the time, but there's no question with this active shooter. People say active shooters are not terrorists. Well, they are terrorists, but this guy especially was. I mean, he claimed affiliation and allegiance to ISIS. He, you know, talked about uh, strapping people. He had hostages. It was very different than uh, I hate to say normal, but the 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 most common active shooter, which is psychologically broken, just goes in there for a head count, bang, 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 and then kill myself. Done right? That, that's, um, that's kind of their typical MO. So three hours versus 10 minutes claiming allegiance to ISIS, calling 911 multiple times, calling uh, a news station, posting on Facebook. Um, there's, there's so many differences of why this was even outside of what we would have been training for. You look at, so like you, br you brought up, um, the uniqueness of this and we're talking about it, right? So, 
The other two that are unique in my mind are the Aurora shooting with the um, uh, the theater, um, movie theater, which absolutely. You know, you talk about being six blocks away, and in this world, people have they can make their own choices, and they should. And most of the time, it's good choices, but sometimes it's absolutely horrific. But you know, I there's still sometimes the hand of God that just gets placed in like, okay, this horrific things happened, but the but the trauma center six blocks away, or the fact in Aurora shooting, like I just brought up. The time the active shooter started was the the transfer time for all law enforcement. So all the guys getting off and all the guys getting on, everybody was able to respond and they were able to save a lot of people. And the the other yeah, one, and, and, and I I actually um, I, I've written a couple papers just uh, for some college classes and yeah. I've focused on it. And Aurora was one that I I looked at. I looked at the after action reviews, and and it was it was fortunate they had just completed. And actually there was a. a a SWAT training that was taking place just miles from there that had just completed. Yeah. So they, they had those resources there really uh, quite fast, as did we. I mean, I had I had OPD officers and, and other law enforcement members mm. coming by me like I was standing still. And I, I don't exactly stand still when I'm responding to an emergency. <laughs> so to have somebody come by me, I'm like, holy cow. We, you know, you, you, you really start to grasp what's going on here mm. more by what's happening in your surroundings yeah. Uh, than you are actually what you you're visually seeing in the scene, and and that mm. a lot of times for me uh, is kind of how I gauge the severity or the enormity of the event is is what's happening in the periphery, if you will. I like with that. Long and everything else, you know. So well, that, that's uh, that's a that's an excellent point because I went from Hurricane Harvey directly to the Northern California wildfires. Hurricane Harvey, it was like the same thing, like. You couldn't, if you stopped to look around you of all the different parts that were moving and how fast people were going, you would have gotten behind the curve because you would have just been blown away by all the, the media parts yeah. for life saving. Yeah. But in the wildfires, at least for the role that I got out there, they were also calling it a type one, most catastrophic. And it was catastrophic for sure for the people. There's, But in terms of like complexity, like people were working 12 hour shifts and going home, you know, like that's, that's not type one. And, uh, I'm probably going to get a lot of pushback from the people because obviously lives were impacted. Not, I'm not talking <laughs> yeah, about that. Yeah. I'm just talking about the yeah. complexity. Pulse nightclub is a type one event because again, not 10 minutes, three hours claiming affiliation with, you know, ISIS. And as you noted, a million things happening all at the same time. And so, um, what I like to tell people is like, it's sometimes it's hard to figure out when you're in the, uh, what, like to classify type one, type two, type three. I don't know really what a type two is, but I always know what a type three is, you know, a yeah. county flood and Not I, a type one. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, yeah. And I know what yeah. a type one is. Right. So, um, yeah, so that's interesting that you uh, that you researched um, Aurora too, though. That's that's kind of fascinating. And, and I've done others. I mean, obviously, uh, I had an opportunity uh, at the request of uh, did some things for Department of Homeland Security, and just uh, had an opportunity to to do some stuff up in Indiana and Indianapolis and mm. some other departments. Um, and it, you know, it was in the moment. It was definitely get that message out there. Listen, you can never be too prepared, but it's like I mentioned early on, we, we do spend a lot of time, a lot of departments spend an inordinate amount of time in preparing for mass casualty. And what we've always known mass casualty to be is, is, and I'm sure if you tabletop one, it's that hurricane, it's a tornado, it's an overturned school bus, it's a 
tanker truck that dumped all its acid all over the road and we got a chemical cloud, but we've never really until the last five years as an industry, we've never really sat down and said, okay, this is what just happened and what measures were in place. What did the after action review, which in my opinion, fairly accurate, but not really in the eyes of the individuals that lived mm. that event. And, and I can say that I looked at the Las Vegas event a year later, actually had an opportunity to meet some of the individuals that were working that event um, a year later, because we did have members that traveled from Orlando to Las Vegas, part of our peer support program and stuff that they were trying to launch at the time, uh, go out there. You know, when we had Pulse happen, and, and I'm segueing a sidebar a little bit, but we, this is going to get into your peer support and your mental wellness and stuff like that. But mm-hmm. we had a tremendous amount of outpouring from other departments, FDNY, Boston FD, you know, individuals that have been through very similar tragedies. And they traveled down here with the International Association of Firefighters and, and on their own accord uh, because they had just been through a tragedy themselves, whether it be the Boston Marathon bombing or 9 11, mm-hmm. whatever. Um, it's going to impact people. But with this event, you know, it evolved over three hours. We, we've hit on that a couple of different times. It went from an active shooter with a, a high level MCI acuity to an EOD for us. If everybody's using the same terminology, it's an explosive ordnance device. Uh, they had several bomb sniffing dogs there that actually had positive hits on the same vehicle mm. um, and in a hostage situation. And, you know, then, so it, it evolved. It, it really had several moving parts, several components that were occurring. And during this three hours, it actually went in waves because there were opportunities where law enforcement were able to get into the nightclub while they had this guy barricaded in the back and continue to remove victims and get them out to us. Um, you know, for us, the, the idea of ballistics and all that wasn't something that was fully introduced to the department yet. It wasn't readily accessible for us. And we, we weren't really prepared to operate in that hot zone, uh, if you will. I know five years have passed and there's been a lot of discussions of where EMS providers will and will not operate. And even to this day, you know, speaking with some of the high in command law enforcement officers there, they're like, you know, they've said, we, we didn't expect you to go into the nightclub. Yeah. Um, and sometimes there's an expectation and that's, you know, that's the big thing, John, I, as the incident commander and as the guy calling the shots uh, at one point, you know, I basically had to say, no, we're not doing that. I'm not putting my individuals in that position. We've not been trained for it. We, we, I mean, I understand it. We're first responders, right? What we do has evolved. It's no longer, we don't just get 911 calls for cats in the tree and houses that are on fire. We get called for anything that somebody deems an emergency in their eyes. And, and that's what we've evolved to. So we've added all these com- components. We've added hazmat. We've added aviation rescue, whatever, disaster preparedness, tornadoes, hurricanes, wildfires, you name it. Yeah. And, and this industry has evolved. And it's a lot of data and a lot of information for us to keep up with. Um, so, yeah, I, you know, I, I feel like every, a lot of things went really, really well for us where there are some opportunities for improvement and what we do, that's going to be the case with anything. Absolutely. And unfortunately it takes that event to actually occur before you know what your weaknesses are. You can, you're not able to exploit those weaknesses sitting on a tabletop exercise. It just doesn't happen. Yeah. Your process, or oh, it can be flawless and yet you can still have casualty 
Absolutely. Right? And and th- that's that's just like the reality of the field. I like that phrase. What is that other phrase? You can do every sing- everything right and still lose. Um, and so like that's that's like a really big thing. And so I guess for our field, you know, like I said, we have emergency managers, first responders on here, military personnel, whatever. You talk about after action reviews. What are some of the, like the high level things that any any department could? In fact, I want to bring up the other thing too in a second about uh, how it's expanding into other areas. We'll talk about that. But what are your specific after actions? What you did really well, and what you think uh, others people should to at least ingest or digest for for their um, for their departments. Yeah, and you know we've seen a, a lot of activity in the last couple of years that uh, you know is disheartening. Obviously, right? We we just had one at a railroad or a facility. We, we've had one at a distribution center uh, with you know five, seven, ten casualties, and yeah. it, it certainly you don't like to sit and listen to that. But those were confined in, in terms of the, the geographic specificity of that. They happened in a very small localized area of a warehouse or in a yard or something of that nature. And, and, you know, the things that worked really well in this scenario, and, and I can't overemphasize this enough, it, the, the use of ICS and the incident command structure and, and understanding NIMS, even though it was derived from wildland firefighting and, you know, adapted into mm-hmm. the world of first responders and stuff, um, that absolutely proves beneficial. And you've got to get those things moving early, even if you anticipate that this thing is going to expand or going to grow. It's easier to get those resources moving early. And, uh, you know, I, I've heard some people, not specifically this event, but I've heard others, ah, you know, they overreacted. They did this, not specifically the pulse for me, but just in general conversation. Sometimes when we talk about disaster and stuff, oh, way too many resources. What a waste or the set. No, I don't believe you can have too many resources when it is scaling and it's growing exponentially. Um, yeah. So getting these groups and divisions and understanding ICS, I mean, there was a, an opportunity for improvement, obviously, in our unified command. And, and obviously, that's identified in the after action review. And, and I own part of that as the incident commander, even though I wasn't the highest ranking official on the scene. Um, and it really was probably outside of my scope of what I should be doing. It was identified. And at the end of the day, I represented the members in the organization that was present on that scene. And I saw an opportunity for where we could have done better with that. But so did the other agency that, that we were supposed to be working together with in that unified command. Mm. Um, so, you know, things that went well, right. The, 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 the guys just operating with some control and maturity and, and just taking it step by step. They knew they had a task in front of them, unlike any other they've had in their career. And most of these individuals I've worked with for my entire career at, at the fire department. Mm. Um, and I knew what to expect, right? You know, your strengths and weaknesses, you know what you can expect, but th- these men and women were flawless in their execution of doing what we had to do. Um, but getting that early, getting it set up, really understanding really what you have uh, and how in the enormity of it, whether it's five patients, 10 patients, 50 patients, uh, fortunately, like you said, I mean, they were, well over 300 people in that nightclub. I mean, the reports say this because this is what they're supposed to have, but let's push that number, you know, closer to, you know, five, four or 500, uh, four or 500 people in that nightclub. But regardless, um, it could have been a lot worse. Yeah. 
I think the biggest challenge is when I look at an event like that and also when I reviewed Las Vegas's response a year later, geographically, the the size of the event was spread out over several blocks. I mean, Las Vegas, uh, people were running into the hotels and seeking shelter in, in some of the resorts and stuff were there. And, and mm. a lot of that happened with us, too. And, uh, you know, one of my lessons learned personally and one of the things I would do differently is I would – I would look at that geographic difference and separate it into maybe a Northern division and a Southern division or, or, you know, North or South or whatever, mm. because we did have individuals that actually fled to the South of that nightclub and our entire operation, including the trauma center was north. on the North side. Mm. And we were cut off um, from getting down that main artery, uh, Orange Avenue, which basically runs that North to South venue we were cut off because that was the hot zone with that later in the, in the, as it evolved, yes, we, we did. Um, I did decide to move some units down to that South side and start looking at, do we have anybody down there that we need to be accountable for? Um, you know, going back to what really worked well, we had a lot of resources from our department. We had a lot of resources from our adjoining departments through our, uh, mutual aid agreements. Mm. And I utilize those resources. I, I had liaisons go to the trauma center because that way I have eyes and ears on what's going on there. I mean, ORMC, uh, Orlando Health, our level one trauma center, they said, bring them all. And I'm thinking, all right, I've been in this system a long time. I used to fly on that helicopter that goes into that system. How are they going to handle them all? And somehow miraculously, anything that was a trauma or, uh, it, or, or a red by our MCI category, they wanted it all, and man, mm. they, they handled it, and they didn't lose a single one of them that were that's transported to that. So that's incredible. But we created this flow, and that and that was the thing. Early on, you, you got to pull the reins back on all those transport units, and you got to get mm. them to staging and then start bringing them in as you need them and coordinating all those efforts. So the discipline, the amount of discipline that was presented by all the officers that were put into those positions is what allowed this thing to really just move, and it mm. was very – uh, fluid, if you will, in that when there was a demand, and it, it did, it peaked on us a couple times, OPD would bring out another dozen victims, uh, and we were ready to receive them at the edge of that hot zone, if you will, mm-hmm. and we moved them into whether we could just move them into triage or get them right into transport and get them going to the trauma center. So, mm. you know, a lot of things went well, John. Uh, end of the day, you, like you're it. always a professional. You're going to go back and look at it and say, okay, what opportunities where there's some opportunities for us to, to do things a little bit differently. At the end of the day, I still stand firmly that the opportunities I speak of would not have changed the outcome of the event. Mm. We would have still had 49 victims. We, we would have still had close to 40 that we rescued um, because those operational changes, the, 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 the presence in that unified command post towards the end, would it have made a difference in the outcome for the, the individuals that were already deceased within the club? I, I don't believe it would have. And it's unfortunate because that's not what we like to do. We, we like to get in, get it done, save lives. I mean, that's what we're about. We're, we're really strong type A success driven individuals and we don't like to fail. I, I don't know a single person that's in emergency management or in fire or EMS or, or anything as a first responder that likes failure. We don't drive there is only one person in the Pulse nightclub shooting that failed, and it was the shooter. Absolutely. 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 And I'm not yeah. talking about it. That, you brought that up, so we'll keep that there. But, yeah. Uh, 
Yeah, screw I, that. I, but yeah, yeah, I, yeah. man, it, he's not worth my time or energy at this point. Yeah, good so. point. Good point. Um, but uh, yeah, like on that same vein of that you're talking about from the responder side, um, you know, disasters, whether it's natural or man-made, when you when you're dealing with life-saving operations and and really life-impacting operations. Uh, and I've had friends who were who've worked in congregate shelters, and just seeing people lose everything, and that causes them to break down. There's a lot of just, you know, we are success driven. We're we are, a lot of us are A type personalities, but that comes at a cost sometimes because we're unwilling to face the reality of that. Despite all the training, despite all the whatever you know, the, the stuff that we deal with are, is not normal. And, no, you, you know, you have, you, there's an impact to you. And I've brought this up on the show before, but there's also an impact to your family. My wife is a graphic designer. She is amazing. She has like so many accolades to her name. She didn't sign up to like walk over to the, you know, tornado and punch the tornado in the face and try to pull people <laughs> out of buildings. Right. Yeah. Like, um, there was one time where uh, USAR came up to me in uh, Georgia tornadoes, and they asked to figure out the math um, to because I did analytics on the, of the national team. Hey, there was a boy that was sucked out of a home. Could you figure out where all the different possibilities of where he could have gone and how far? What well, you know, unfortunately, I did the the, the math, and it, basically because of my my degrees, I knew he would have been disintegrated in the tornado still gave the trajectories of where it could have gone based off of rotation and speed and all this other stuff, but they never found him. You know, that is an incident that like really frustrates me, but I, I understand it. My wife didn't sign up for that, you know, and especially when I started doing the man-made stuff, especially in DC. And I, I don't talk about that too much, but, uh, I told her about it one time and it like really shook her for three days. Like, Oh, like this is what my husband really does. Like, and I, I think we have to talk about that, you know, um, Pulse nightclub, you said, you just said that like literally everybody was flying by you or flying into the scene and trying to deal with this. That's a lot of people and their families who for three hours were worrying about this, you know, this terrorist. Um, what would you say to, if you could influence the country somehow, what would you say to that aspect? Well, I, I, you know, John, obviously this, this will, um, shouldn't come as a surprise, obviously to first responders. Uh, we, we talked about it. We talked about strong type A personalities. Uh, we, we seem impervious to emotion mm. and, uh, we don't on the outside in most cases, we, we don't even seem like things like that rock us. Like, you know, that's just not in our genes. We just don't do that. But yeah. even if you look back as far as 9-11, there's tons of photography out there that show you these members from FDNY and the Port Authority and mm. the police departments and stuff that were already grieving over the enormity of the event. So, you know, we, we see that a lot in, in our mainstream media. Um, you know, they, they a lot of times they'll do a good job of showing all the great things and, you know, all the video and stuff like that. And, and they also show all the horrific things that have occurred, the, the loss of life and, you know, doing it with, with some regard to the sensitivity of the situation. But the first responders uh, for a long time, 
we've always just kind of, yeah, we, we did what we did and we, man, I wish we could have done more. And then we move on to the next day. Mm. And, um, in, in this case, John, I, I can tell you personally, not the case. And mm. I, my, my number one goal in the days and weeks following that, I was genuinely concerned about the, the members that responded to that call. Now you have some that are calloused and hard and they may not ever show you that it's bothering them or it bothered them that we couldn't do more. I'm the incident commander. I wore that weight on my shoulders that there wasn't more we could have done for the individuals in the club. But given the information I had at the time, based on the resources I had at the time um, and, and the enormity of the event, I mean, mass casualty is not a, not a nice thing because in mass casualty, you are actually being asked to triage. That's what we do. And if you have a black, you have a black, you move on. In, in normal responses to say just a shooting with one or two victims, that may be an individual that we actually initiate life-saving measures in, and we try to resuscitate. But in a mass casualty, when you have limited resources and you're really trying to impact those that have an opportunity for survival, that's the mode that you are trained to operate in. And, and sometimes it just gets nuts. So, mm. you know, I spent, I spent a good amount of time. Our, our department was in its incipient phase of, developing a peer support group. Uh, you know, a lot of departments across the country rely on workers comp and things like that. And they have IAP, uh, uh and, and then they have EAP employee assistance programs. The, the reality of those employee assistance programs is they are contracted by the city. And, uh, you know, I'm, I probably will catch flack on this again, but it's a contracted service that's low bid for mental health providers that can come in and help somebody if they're having a difficult time. But I don't know that they really have the ability to relate to mm. what just occurred. Yeah. So in the days following, you know, we did some debriefings and we got all that organized uh, through the efforts of, of our local and, and other members. And we had members that came from Boston and they were part of the Boston strong effort. We had members that came from FDNY. We had members that came from all over the country who convened in, in the city of Orlando to be there for the first responders. Now, the city themselves, they did an amazing job in their response for the victims of the event. Um, there was a lot of relief efforts set up and stuff like that. And, you know, I, I caught some scrutiny over this uh, in the months and, and years following. Um, but I, I feel like it's got to be said. The responders, in, in my opinion, weren't given priority. Uh, and I'm not saying that we needed the priority, but we were asked three days later to go back to work and be ready to do the same Jeez. thing all over again. Matter I was just fact, wondering how long you guys had off three days. Well, actually the, the, the unfortunate thing of it, John, is we uh, demobilized the event just after 5 AM. Um, and a couple units actually got caught on calls going back to the station. Now that was not my call. I was still in the demobilization phase of the event and mm -hmm. units were being returned to return back to the station. And, you know, here's a unit that just worked an MCI with 49 victims, um, 38, 39, you know, critically wounded, a couple deads that were, you know, just all of that. War and they're zone. on their way back to the station and they catch a, a man down that is a, a homeless individual sweeping on a bench or something like that. And you, do you think they have the patience or the, the, the willingness to, to no? So it, it, it has to occur immediately. That process has to start the minute you start demobilizing that. And, you know, there's some yeah. opportunities we learned. City did an amazing job with the victims and stuff. Um, the, the city stepped in to a degree 
but it was our, our peer support group that was in a very incipient phase of development and the relationships we had with uh, UCF, uh, University of Central Florida, and they, they have a, a program out there that, that has grown significantly for them. And then the support of all the other departments across the country that came in to help provide that. And, and there were individuals that were having some difficulty with that. John, I, I've seen a lot of things, but some guys, you know, saw things that they would never see in their entire career. And it was all within one night. I mean, multiple victims and, and anybody that understands firearms and stuff like that, the, what these wounds may or may not look like, or what these individuals may look like. And it, we had victims being brought out and being brought to us that were well past the point of, I mean, they were triaged as a black and, and these bystanders that were helping the, the club goers themselves, they were trying to help. And I applaud those efforts tremendously. They're bringing that out to us. So not only are they seeing it and it's maybe their best friend or somebody they were clubbing with that night, but we're seeing it as first responders and we don't get an opportunity to do anything, but just pull the sheet. And, yeah. and that impacts people. So, you know, from my level as instant commander, I wore the weight for several years of whether or not the decisions I made that night were in the best interest of the event. Um, and I, I spent a lot of time, uh, uh, two days later, I, I won't lie. I, you know, I can't, I can't, I can't really, <laughs> I can't lie about this. I was pissed. I was pissed that not one member of my leadership team at the organization that was above me even reached out to me to say, Hey man, I know you had a really bad night and uh, I'd love to talk about it. If you need anything, you know, let me know. And it didn't happen. Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe I was expecting too much. I, I don't know. But at that point in time, I feel like I was failed as the, you know, as the member that was representing our presence there, it, just a phone call, you know, just say, Hey, and I know you had a shitty night and we want to talk about it. And uh, just want to make sure you're okay. You know, a lot of stuff went on. So I took it upon myself in the days following, I I actually compiled the list of of every OFD member that was on that call. And I tried to personally call them myself, Mm. whether I got a voicemail or whatever. I said, Hey, this is Brian Davis. I'm just calling to see how you're doing. Tremendous work the other night. I know it was a lot, you know, and and that was a drive for me. um, And I felt it important. And then our peer support group, uh, along with some of the actions of, of these other groups from across the country, they finally got guys on track and um, I didn't realize the impact it was really having on me. Uh, It it was driving things at home. Like you said, you take this home to your family. I mean, my wife was up at five o'clock that morning and it's on news and she knew, she knew I was there. She's like, I knew you were there. I I knew it had to be you. There's no time I've ever turned on the TV where there's something bad in the city of Orlando happening and you're not connected to it in some (laughs) way. Um, But Kind of a hero, though. Yeah, really hard, John. And um, about two years after the event, one of my one of my lieutenants, uh, who I consider one of my best friends, um, he came to me. He said, "All right, man." He said, "It's your turn." And I'm like, "What are you talking about?" Because you got to take care of you. You, You've been dealing with this for two years. It's time. And uh, you know, not a lot of people know this, but I, I had to seek professional help. I had to go see somebody to deal with the PTSD because it, it, it was creating something of me that I wasn't proud of. And a lot of that had to do with just bearing that weight, an event like that, you know, where you, you want to give it all and do everything within your power and you feel like you failed. I mean, I, I was left, I had a tremendous amount of support from the men and women that were there on that call. 
my immediate supervisor, good support. He was off that night, not on duty. Um, uh, actually, I should say she, uh, the, the assistant chief that would normally be my supervisor that night, she was off. I had some other chiefs from other departments that I've remained acquaintance with since they retired and moved on to other departments. You know, they, they reached out and called and, and maybe my expectation was too much, but just a phone call in some cases goes a long way just to touch somebody and say, Hey man, how you doing? You know, it, we've never dealt with anything like that. And we, we've seen stuff like this throughout our entire life. Uh, you, you're affiliated with USAR and that's how we made our acquaintance through those connections. You know, I couldn't imagine, um, I, I've had one interaction in USAR and I actually, I was a flight medic on a flight program and we flew to New Orleans after Katrina and we were there specifically just to evacuate ICU patients out of hospitals and movement. But, and, but I, I got to see it, you know, I, we yeah, flew, over the zone, flew over everything and we saw what it looked like. And I'm like, Holy cow, we're here dealing with ICU patients and stuff that just need to be transported to outlying hospitals, but you're still seeing the tragedy mm-hmm. and the, the huge loss of life that occurred from that event. So, uh, those things impact you, man. They stick with you forever. You talked about having visual reminders, you know, that the Pulse nightclub is still there in, in memoriam of the victims that lost their life. But we have individuals who drive by that, that scene every third day that were part of that scene. And, and at some point, you know, that's got a, that's got a way on them. They've got to see that and remember, and they have these flashbacks. Um, because we do in, in first responders and, and I'm sure it's the same in emergency management. If you've had those experiences, you have this Rolodex of cards and, and it's constantly spinning in your memory mm-hmm. bank and you, you could, a sound uh, will trigger something with you. And, and I will tell you that for two years, a very loud sound that sounded similar to that of a weapon would startle me, a door. Uh, mm-hmm. You talked about, you know, how your wife um, and, and same with mine, how your wife is kind of living it through you. you call it a crazy, but, I go into a restaurant, I'm looking at exits. I'm actually sitting with my back to a door because I want to know that I have an exit to get out of something. And, and I've taught my wife and my kids that, and it's, it's quite scary actually, because you're like, you don't want to do that. You don't want to feel like you're overcautious, but that's yeah. what events like this do to you as a human being. I don't care if you're a firefighter. I don't care if you're a nurse, a graphic designer, it doesn't matter if you've been involved with something like that, the, the individuals that were involved in the Pulse nightclub, all the, the patrons that were there, this will impact them for the rest of their lives. So yeah. it's not just us as first responders, it's everybody um, is going to be impacted by that. And now what we're seeing is because of all the avenues with social media and stuff like that, you see it immediately. Yeah. I mean, you, you, people yeah, people use it to get money. His life in California, you know, after being shot by another firefighter, what a tragedy that is. But you knew within minutes, yeah. in your neck, you knew within minutes that that was happening. And you're like, we didn't have that 10 years ago or 15 years ago. You didn't know that something this big was going on in California other than the news. You didn't see it in social media or, or Twitter or, you know, Facebook or whatever it is you're using for those platforms. So. But the, the recovery piece of it, uh, you know, I was doing some presentations, as I shared with you, and I, I, I coined it the before, during, and after uh, of an active shooter event. And that was a presentation about an hour long. Mm. And I started really diving into that thing. And I'm like, man, you know, really, what I want people to get out of this is the aftermath. And I changed it to the before, during, and aftermath of an, an active shooter event. And 
keeping in mind our, our, our thoughts and prayers and feelings for the victims of an event like that. But this was geared more towards taking care of each other and our first responders that are dealing with that because we see this day in and day out, day in and day out. It's not to this magnitude, um, but we're still dealing with it. You know, we're still dealing with individuals who lost their life over senseless acts or things of that nature. Yeah. And, and it'll take you back. I mean, you, you just see that. Let, so there's uh, you make two really good points, and I'm going to actually start with the second point, and I'm going to go to the first point after that. The um, people people are in this weird place right now when they hear that this one aspect of this one topic is important to me. You can name any topic. Let's. I mean, it's we're Gay Pride Month right now, right? So gay Gay Pride Month, Black History Month, right? You hear other people of like, why isn't there this month or that month? It's like, okay, you can still talk about this. It doesn't have to diminish this other piece. And so I think it's 100% acceptable to say as a first responder, as the incident commander, as somebody who would have really appreciated somebody reaching out and a catastrophic event saying, how are, how are you doing? To say, hey, I think we need to be aware that there's this group over here, the first responders and their families, that, that need mental and emotional care. First aid. I don't even like care. I like saying first aid, mental first aid, right? You've been through a mentally traumatic event that requires medicine. And that medicine might be sitting around the table and talking to, pe to people who you don't have to really go through the event with. It might be talking to a professional, uh, which I think, by the way, that is the, one of the toughest things you can do is to, to like to own up to that man up, woman up, whatever, and say like, hey, all right, I'm going to tell my buddy that like he needs to take care of this. That's a tough thing to do. And then it's even tougher to say, you're right. I'm going to take care of this. So I, I applaud you. and I'm a big fan of that. Um, and so I, I think it's okay to say that. I think it's also okay to to note inherently duh you should also be taking care of uh you know the victims and their families and um yeah when you when you have to say duh i i think that that's that's the point of the conversation you're like oh okay like it's not offensive one way or the other you know things are obvious yeah yeah so and it it is tough you just you mentioned you know it it took me a while to really i don't want to use the word concede but uh, address that help was needed. And, and I think you, you've met enough officers throughout your career in emergency management and disaster preparedness and what you do with USAR. I mean, those guys are put to task time and time again um, with similar situations, but it, it is one of those things. It's tough as a chief officer to be able to say, Hey, hey man, I'm, I'm really not doing well with this because you don't want your peers to look at that as, as a weakness. And I'd like to believe yeah. that our industry has evolved to where individuals don't see that as a weakness in their superior officers or their leaders. They see it more that we are vulnerable just like anybody else. And it, and it does impact you. Um, if anything, it's made me more aware about how it impacts our members. And, you know, it's, it's just one of those things. And, and like I said, I talked about changing that, to where it was the before, during, and aftermath, and it was the aftermath in the mental health and mental awareness that first responders across the globe, not just here, but anywhere that deals with this type of event, um, what they may need 
because we're asked to go back and do that. Hey, you just cut out on me. Can you hear me? I, I can't hear you. You just cut out. Can you hear me? Uh oh. Hey, can you hear right. me? Yeah, I got you. Sorry about that. Yeah, it was me or you. Uh, I don't know, but it was muted for a second. But let's uh, we'll just edit this part out. Amen. Amen's our video guy. Cuts this out. Um, let's start. Let if you could just review the question of uh, you know, what you were just talking about. Yeah, you know, we we you, you, we just gotta we gotta spend a little more time um, focusing on our first responders because we're asked to go back and do that job the very next day, time and time again. And, and it's tough. I think, you know, whatever part we got cut out there with, um, thank you, technology and COVID, <laughs> we mastered it, but we're still trying to figure it out. But, uh, That's funny. you know, it's, it's hard as a chief officer or somebody that is, is revered or admired or respected um, throughout the ranks. It's hard to reach out and say, Hey, you know, I, I need a little bit of help with this. Um, and I think that I hope that across the country, I hope that that message is resounding to where we, we as first responders, I mean, uh, number one cause of, of suicide rates amongst first responders is the highest it's ever been in years. Um, and, you know, I was part of 10 years ago of a, looking at a, a line of duty protocol and looking at was it what was in place by the National Fallen Firefighters uh, Foundation and, and all that. You know, there was a time where suicide wasn't even considered as part of a line of duty uh, death. Uh, PTSD wasn't really talked about. And it, it was believed that suicide was a choice and that those individuals did that on their own. So why should they get benefits of a line of duty death or something like that? And that's evolved right now. We're talking about suicide amongst first responders and we're talking about uh, how important it is that they get the help they need. So. You know, I take the pulse event. I'm very proud and sad in the same moment. I, I felt like it was a, a shining moment for me personally. Yes. Is, is that what you want to put on a resume when you're applying to do something or go somewhere? Or do, it, It's not really shouldn't be the highlight of that because there was a lot of uh, sadness that came out of that. It, it, it wasn't the highlight of the career. Mm. And, and again, it, the men and the women that partook in that event and are mutual aid responders and everybody else came in, John, at the end of the day, they're the ones that really made it happen. Sure. You put the plan in motion. You're the guy that's coming up with this plan. You're the guy, as you described, describing water flows and, and trajectories and all this to hopefully find this young child. But at the end of the day, those people are the ones that are out there actually doing the work and making it happen. So I made it a priority couple years really trying to make sure that these guys, uh, we had a lot of people that really did a tremendous job and trying to, get involved and make that happen. And then finally, you know, a couple of years after um, I got the tap on the shoulder and, you know, I said, Hey, it's your turn. So, nice. so, you know, I understand this is disaster tough and we're talking about preparedness and stuff like that. And we can be prepared as that before, right. Mm -hmm. um, the before and the during don't always match. Yeah. Um, but it's really the after the after is, is the piece. Yeah. We talk about cleaning up. We talk about rebuilding our communities. We talk about, you know, getting infrastructure back in place and everything else. But the rebuilding part of that is the aftermath that an event like that may have on the responders that were there. Yeah. Um, I'm not a wild one firefighter, but I couldn't imagine losing one of my groups 
that got overtaken by a wild on fire. I, I, I couldn't imagine that. I, I wouldn't know what to do with that. Yeah. So, man, so I'm going to go back to that. The, the second point that I wanted to talk about, you, you kind of just highlighted it again. Um, so like most of my career, it's been focused on the response pieces, um, you know, operations and uh, planning for specifically response. Um, and so it's kind of funny, like disaster preparedness in my mind, like the best disaster preparedness you can do is like mitigation. And I'm not talking about built, I'm not talking about doomsday prepping. I'm like super against that actually, but I'm talking about like, uh, is actually going way back in the conversation, um, talking about the, the, the physical makeup of the, the club. There was no egress in the hallway of uh, the bathrooms. There was no way to get out. And so what they, they ended up, in one of the bathrooms, they ended up punching through the, the AC unit, right? And that's how they got out of the yeah. other bathroom. Yep. Yeah. And they were pulling victims out of that opening. So, yeah. yeah. So, so like there, there's something like building codes, like that's mitigating a potential loss of life just by changing building codes uh schools in i believe utah uh all new schools in utah are built with two exits in every classroom that's that's good emergency preparedness right but there's also the, the mous and getting the supplies and getting everybody like uh you know integrated and i think a big part of that is i am lucky enough to have gone to that usar training with walt who connected us and you know really grateful for that he his show just aired and uh, Joe Hernandez and some of these other guys, because I'm looking at it from, I deployed you all the time. I was the guy that nobody saw that was trying to figure out, do you go to A or B? And now that I can see, see that integration, I'm like, man, we need much more integrated. But that all yeah. aside, let me talk about this one point, because it's really important, especially for Father's Day weekend. You talk about the before, and you talked about you checking up on and everybody on everybody, whether it's a phone call or whether it was just like a touch point, whatever. You felt there was responsibility. My thesis in my master's program was all about the psychology of a disaster, specifically to survivors and preventing disaster. And the 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 data is very clear. I said this around Mother's Day because we had. Uh, that got brought up too. Like good parents prevent disasters like this from happening. I mean, they don't. It's not a. It's not a given, or it's not a guarantee, rather. But you know, checking up on people, getting in good environments. We have a problem where, despite in our field wanting to help people, sometimes we forget that the best thing you could do is probably help your family. And the, the best mitigation of a disaster you can do is in the walls of your own home. And so I, I kind of wanted to call that out. I don't know how you feel about that, but you kind of took on that, the parental role anyways, of just doing what another human being should do, just check on people who should be checked on. Right. Yeah. And it, it was tough, John, cause you know, it was, you, you're, you're at this, you, you know, you're dealing with at that level, you're morally, you're you're torn because you wanted to do more you know you 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 look at the the patches of the badges and the things that you're wearing in that time and you know that there there was you wish you could have done more right we go to a house fire with a victim that we're not able to rescue and they perish in that fire i've seen crews you know beat themselves up that's a normal reaction and they go through what could we have done differently could we have gotten in there quicker and stuff and and those are situations that 
you keep adding that little card to your Rolodex of emotions and your Rolodex of experiences. And at some point you're going to see something or hear something or do something that is going to remind you of that moment in time. And it's going to trigger an emotional response with you. Right. Um, you know, I'm, I'm not a doctor. I don't have any background in psychology or psychiatry. Uh, but I can tell you, I, I've, I've done enough with it over the last few years that I know just from the experience, you know, what that looks like. So that's, that's a big deal. Yeah. Uh, I do have to give this caveat. I am not a doctor or a psychologist, but it, the, the psychology of disasters and how people like the social vulnerability of like going through something traumatic. Um, I, we don't get political on the show and so we're not going to get political, but the news that just came out about not, uh, continuing the support of the the family is um is pretty mind-boggling to me uh or not the family the, the victims rather and so um it's just i think we have a responsibility to provide a long-term awareness of the people who have been through this because they could end up hurting themselves and they they just survived you want to keep them surviving that might be two years down the road that might be five years down the road you know, we, we had um, Joe Hernandez, a uh, legend in USAR, was telling me about an experience of uh, a firefighter who had pulled uh, the children out of the nursery of the Oklahoma City bombing. And everybody, if you know that story, you know that all those children had deceased. Yeah. A couple years, yeah. late, couple years later, he had a kid, and the kid was sleeping in the same position and looked like the ch- one of the children he had pulled out. Game over end of the career, yeah. right? Yeah. And who would have ever thought that years later you would have had a kid, the kid was just sleeping in a, you know, in a toddler position, probably the butt up in the air. That's how my son sleeps anyways. He's two years old. He keeps his butt up in the air. It's hilarious. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. But like, you know, a yeah. normal event triggers something in the background and uh, without adequate um, recognition, like the, the same people who provide first aid on, a, on the daily, you guys, need to do need to be have the reality of like the first data of your mental and emotional health. I think we've, we've kind of beat that one uh, quite a bit, but I, I appreciate yeah, you. We, you we do it a lot in house, you know, in the firehouse, we sit around the table and we, we break bread together. I mean, that is part of the traditions and the cultures uh, as a first responder. Mm. Um, and, and that does help a lot, but, but we are peers and that's why we call it peer support. And, and that level of training may or may not be anything more than other, just being somebody that's willing to listen. Hey, um, that's but, a but good step a though. Across, you know, it's not just us. It's, it's across the country and it's probably across the globe with first responders um, that there has to be some type of support mechanism there because we are the ones and, and look at our military, our U S military. I mean, look at the horrendous things that they are involved with and what they do to protect our freedoms as, as an American, you know, what mechanisms do they have in place? Because that's where PTSD originated from to believe is yeah. through the military and then now it's progressed into being identified in the work of first responders and disaster preparedness and things of that nature. So, you know, it, it is a, a crisis, if you will. And again, I'm no expert, but, um, you know, wrapping it up with the, I, I lived it. I mean, the event, a lot of great things to talk about the event, the men and the women that were on that event did a phenomenal job. We could spend a, a whole nother cast talking about just the structure and the operation and stuff like that. We should. Uh, we're we'll have you back anniversary on. Of the event, you know, and, and uh, five year anniversary this year. Um, and, and, and I make it a point every year. Uh, those 
52 members of my organization that are still there, uh, whether it's via email, text message, or a phone call, I make it a point every year just to remind them that, you know, people are there if they need them. And, and sometimes you'd rather do that in person. But I, I think yeah. just the touch, just the, hey, I'm thinking about you type thing goes a long way. Um, and, and I hope that our commanders that were at some of the other horrific events that have occurred across this country, whether it had five victims or 50 victims or, or you know, in between, uh, that they understand their first responders, police, fire, EMS, hospital workers, all that, you know, that's, they, they need that mechanism in place to, to help cope with those situations. I think um, we, we've been highlighting this a lot without actually using the word, and the word is leadership. That is, this is a great discussion, not just for the after actions and what happened and, and, and good, good ideas, but also if you're an emergency manager and you are responding to, you know, your local flood, which is not the Pulse nightclub type one incident, but if you're, you're, uh, you know, responding to this and your emergency manager, the mitigation officer down the room is freaking out because it was their job to make sure that levy that that levy was fixed and it didn't get fixed and you know 500 homes got flooded because of that that that's impactful for that person and if it's impactful john if they care because yeah but I that's this is the thing i, I actually think most that, yeah that i don't care well I, I think that is a minority really i mean we we all got yeah, in the field because we like helping people right yeah yeah you, you will come across an individual from time to time who genuinely is disconnected from the event emotionally because they, they really don't care, or at least that's the way they appear. So Yeah, well, um, sometimes that's the... Very, very small yeah. percentage. Like, for, for me, what I found more often with those types of people is that they have... Um, obviously, there's always the jerk, but, but duh. But, like, but I would say most people in that situation, they've been through enough things that they cannot take the emotional toll anymore so they're 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 i'm here to do the job but in any case like going back to that mitigation officer yeah absolutely check on that person anytime you see a behavior change anytime you do something that's impacting people's lives um you know that's that's a good time to say like hey how you doing like you know and i think that's a great leadership skill i think that's a great note to end on um we we typically do like 45 minute episodes. And so you just, obviously I like talking to you because we're, you know, we're about an hour and 20 into this now. And so it's, it's awesome. And, uh, I just want to thank you again. Um, you, you said for the first two years that, you know, you kind of struggled. I, I hope that you're beyond that because people like me who do to look at the attraction reviews, people like Walt, your colleague who says this guy's the man, um, the guy who, you know, like we, we look at a pulse nightclub and we do after actions on it because of it's just so unique. You did great. And there's a lot of people that you haven't met who have looked at your work and highly respect what you've done. And not just you, but everybody who responded to that, the actor shooter is like the, one of the worst case scenarios because it's murdering innocent life. And when yeah, you're, absolutely. and when you're dealing with that, uh, I think, like I said, one of the toughest things you've ever did, you, you proved that you are disaster tough by saying, hey, like, I'm going to address this. But I, I just want to let you know that you have our respect. We'd love to have you come back on the show and talk about some of those other other aspects. Absolutely. Um, yeah, absolutely. But, yeah, thanks again, Chief. And um, 
you know, you're always welcome. In fact, to the Chiefs' point, um, especially being Father's Day weekend and everything else and long-term care, hey, if anybody needs to reach out, uh, send us an, e- an email at info at dobermanemg.com and just say, like, hey, like, we'll hear you out. We'll point you in the right direction, whatever. We'll do what we can. And, um, you know, we did this with Joe as well. And so happy to get those emails, happy to help out. If you don't want to let anybody know, you want to talk to a stranger, like again, like we'll, we'll figure something out, man. So, uh, yeah, thanks again, chief. Um, absolutely. John. Appreciate the opportunity. And, you know, hopefully the message, I mean, obviously preparedness, cause that's what you're talking about. Uh, and, and I coined it the before, during, and after, and we talk about that in emergency management and MCI and, uh, USAR and, you know, we, we do these drills and we do all this training. Um, it's different. It, mm. You know, we, we plan it, we talk about it and a lot of the components of it do work. Uh, but as an incident commander and something that has that, what I call tactical fluidity, you have to be fluid with the moment. So when it changes from an active shooter to an MCI to, a hostage situation to an explosive ordnance device. Um, when, when all those things are happening, there are so many moving pieces in that. You have to have that uh, operational fluidity and you have to be a, a proactive commander, meaning you're not reacting to what's occurring. You're actually trying to stay a step ahead of that and anticipate the, the growth of the event or the projection of the event, if you will. So that's, that's one of the big things. And then, like I said, we changed that last word from after the aftermath. Um, that's, that's the piece that I think is important. We've done tremendous work with UCF Restores, our own peer support group, which is done through our Benevolent Association, and then other groups that came to our aid during this tragedy. And then we reciprocated that a year later in Las Vegas, and then some of these other events that are occurring. So uh, if the message is there, John, I just, you know, I appreciate the support. Um, I'm humbled by the outpouring of uh, accolade for the event. Again, it wasn't just me. It was the men and the women that, that came to that event that evening that made it what it is. And uh, appreciate Walt as always. Uh, he's been a, a good peer of mine for many, many years. And uh, we share a lot of discussions back and forth about stuff. So uh, thank you again for the opportunity. Uh, I look forward if there's another opportunity to, to divulge into a little bit more. I'd love to be a part of that. Absolutely. So we'll, we'll, I'll actually get Ashley on that right now. So, um, Hey, so I got to do the super cheesy part, the part that I kind of hate, but everybody, uh, this is why I hate it. Cause it sounds so cheesy, but it is important because it shows that like, Hey, this matters. So if you liked what, uh, chief Davis was talking about today, if you got something out of it, which you should have, um, you need to give us, gosh, this sounds so cheesy. You gotta just give us that five star rating you need Absolutely. to subscribe. You get back on the, you know, get and help them get back on the show. It's why show it's why it's important. Follow us on social media, the Disaster Tough Podcast on Instagram and Facebook, or you can follow us our business, Doberman Emergency Management, on LinkedIn and on Facebook as well. We're also on um, on Instagram. We're all over the place. So make sure you follow us. We're, we're going to be posting more about Chief Davis and uh, some of the quotes, some of the stuff that he's had on here on the show. So it's going to be really great next week, and we'll see you back every week. Thanks. Awesome. Thanks.